So hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we're looking at coaching moves across the league, and we're also going to be looking at the upcoming owners meeting in LA and what that means for the possibility of an LA team. After that we'll look at some of the playoff games from last week, in fact all of the playoff games from last week. We're going to take a blister question uh, from you guys, and then we're going to have a look at next week's games. So hey guys, how are we all getting on? We've got Connor here, we've got Harry. Hello. And we've also got Ronan. Hi. Hi guys, so any crack with yourselves? Yeah, not a huge amount. Just got a shiny new OnePlus X, so pretty pleased with myself. Just been playing around with that for the for the last while. Got it, got it arrived last night. It's nice to finally uh, join the legions of people with phones that work. Ah, oh, very nice. What about yourself, Fitz? Yeah, Grant. Just the old heart is recovering from the old game at the weekend, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about that plenty later on. Oh, we will, we will. But, yeah. I'd, I'd imagine that you're still erect. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, heart problems don't tend to go with that. <laughs> well, I thought, I thought normally if it lasted more than four hours, you had to go and see a doctor. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, similar. I'm just I'm very excited about how it went on the weekend as well. But like we said, we'll, we'll get to all that later on. I'm less excited. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course you're <laughs> slightly less excited. Although it was a very good week for you guys. You didn't lose a game and you're going to have some players come back from injury. Yeah, actually, it's the first thing we had in a while when our players got injured. <laughs> Great. So, uh, happy times. So I suppose we'll kick off with some of the news. The first thing we're going to look at is uh, some of the coaching moves that's happened around the league in the last kind of week or two. So I suppose we'll kick off initially with Tampa Bay as they were kind of the late late man to the game. They've uh, decided to fire Lovey Smith uh, after his second year, I believe, as our head coach. Now, there's theories abound as to why they've done this, why they didn't make the jump initially. The big one, I suppose, is that they're looking to keep their offensive coordinator uh, and move him up to uh, head coach. Uh, what, what, what do you make of that, Roman? Yeah, like the, the general theory is that uh, Connor and uh, Jamie's Winston have had some good chemistry going and that they really want to go that, like they really want to make that work. The other theory is that Lovey Smith had some control over personnel decisions and they wanted to actually just take that away uh, from the head coach and go to a more standard GM controls personnel, head coach controls, you know, coaching. By the way, Ronan, it would appear that we're not interesting enough for Harry. He's currently Snapchatting instead of listening to you. I, I can multitask. Yeah, I think can it, multitask. This, this, I've, got this, of, I've got a lot of ladies, man. They need this to know is, what this I'm is why Harry's not allowed fancy technology. He's now completely distracted. <laughs> I was paying it's attention. Like that, I like that dog from Up. If I was going to be a dog, I would have thought of myself more as Airbud than anything else. Touchdown, Airbud. <laughs> <laughs> I am listening. What about nice. yourself, then? Do you, do you reckon Cooter's the man for the jar? Cotter? I'm not actually sure, because I, I think it's because I keep thinking Jim Bob Cooter, yeah. and it's just oh, more fun to have two Cooters in a league. <laughs> It's always, it's always more fun with two cooters. Uh, it's difficult to say. It is an odd decision, like said what Ronan was saying, because I was listening. Uh, you have to wonder if there were sort of other factors, like trying to take away the personnel decisions to see what's going on. It's difficult to know. The offense has looked good in Tampa Bay at times, and has also looked quite bad at times. So it sort of depends, I suppose, a thing we don't know, which is what's his relationship with Jameis, what's his relationship with the young players coming through. Yeah. Or do they have more trust in him than they would have in Lovie Smith, who isn't primarily known as being an offensive-minded coach and has shown perhaps some poor uh, game management decisions and clock management and things like that have always been sort of problems for Lovie, despite his, his legacy. It is still a bit of a shock to see him cut loose so soon and in the middle of a rebuilding project, though. That's very, very odd. It is, but I suppose like he's a defensive-minded coach who came in and their defense has been awful and has been progressively awful. Like He's running a system that doesn't really fit the modern NFL, really. He's not using his personnel well. He's taken really good players and made them look awful over the last two years. So I can see why they were a bit annoyed at that. Uh, like uh, the, the rationale behind but, the Cooter thing... Connor, it's the Tampa defense. Yeah, Tampa too. Everyone, yeah. everyone still falls for that, right? <laughs> if they weren't looking at promoting Cooter or Cotter, Cooter, 
Whatever. They were looking to promote the offensive coordinator. It was a scenario where he would then be able to be essentially pinched by other teams to go and interview for jobs. So I think this is allowing them to compete to keep him if they want to keep him. So I suppose that's what's going on there. Miami have made uh, uh, made a decision on their new head coach. Uh, and in equally unexcitingness, it was Adam Gase. Uh, are we excited by this? I suppose, Harry, they're in your division. What do you make of Adam Gase? I quite like Gase in some ways. Like I think what he did in Denver for a while as a defensive coordinator was, was quite good and quite clever and about maximising the ability. We saw him do it in, in Chicago to an extent. I mean, Chicago, I was thinking about it before the podcast. Like, Is there anything notable to say about Chicago this season? And there isn't. And that, for Chicago, is progress because they weren't an awful flaming wreck of a team this season. So we saw like Cutler making less high-profile mistakes, which Cutler is famous for, and saw just being a bit more calm and fitted in the offense. And yes, the team still struggled because it's still... Uh, not particularly talent-rich team, and that's a problem he may face in Miami. We don't really know what they're going to look like personnel-wise in terms of the players coming into next season. But if you want a guy who's got a track record of sort of calming it down and trying to make the best of a situation where a quarterback isn't perhaps in his most confident or most comfortable phase, that's kind of actually what you want in Miami. You want a guy who will bring a bit of stability and try and just calm things down and just stop it from being a disaster. And then you see whether or not he can take it further. Yeah, of course. What do you think, Fitz? Is Gase a man who gets your juices flowing? Well, his, his general idea is that he's a quarterback whisperer, and this is obviously a decision that's been made uh, to try and perhaps get the best out of Ryan Tannehill, who's obviously someone who has been somewhat enigmatic up to this point, similar to Jay Cutler. Like, to be honest, I'm not really sure this is a great decision. Like, he isn't very experienced. He's been around for a while, but still quite young for a head coach. And it kind of reminds me of, like, Josh McDaniels, kind of Mark Tressman, these kind of offensive gurus but who really don't have the overall kind of knowledge base you would expect to be like the head coach at this point in their careers like if he's paired with the right coordinators then we could see some good things but to be such a young coach himself he probably won't have that kind of I don't know, networking effectively to be able to hire that so it's really relying on the general manager and the owner to kind of like be able to like get him guys that will be able to compliment him uh, some experienced coordinators would be useful, I think, for him in his first couple of seasons. But, you know, you're taking a punt here. He's kind of an unknown. So, obviously, that could mean he could be the next head coach, like best coach, Bilicek, etc. So, we'll see. Yeah, no, 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 of course. Like, I suppose there, there, there is a slight problem looking at it when it's his first time around. That There's a degree to which his fate is now going to be interlinked with Tannehill's, given he's coming in and accepting a job with Tannehill there. Like, I think that probably played a factor in his selection because I don't, I don't see him coming in as this quarterback guru and then being able to select another first or second round quarterback and groom them behind them I think they're kind of looking for him to get results with the team they've got there and continue to build on that project rather than start afresh the next one we'll have a look at because it's the only other one where we've kind of got an in limbo of whether they're going to have a head coach or not poor Jim Caldwell is sat and isn't sure whether or not he has a job they've hired a new GM in Bob Quinn who I believe is one of your Patriots guys used to be head of personnel there or something but yeah so he's he's now decided that He's the GM, but he's not sure. He hasn't made a decision yet on whether or not uh, Caldwell will be kept on. Now, we did see an improvement in the back half from this team. And to be honest, there were some decisions that went against them referee-wise that probably cost them a win or two. Is this a scenario where we think Jim Caldwell will be a good person to hold on to for at least a year? Or would you be cutting ties and looking to start fresh there? Caldwell is kind of in a similar position to Lovie Smith in that you think he's coasting on a reputation to an extent and that you look at him running a team in the here and now and it's not going spectacularly well and you do wonder if you know the game is changing a bit and we saw the huge improvement in the team when well not a huge improvement 
relatively huge improvement in the team when uh, Jim Bob Cooter came in as offensive coordinator. But you do wonder, you know, what Caldwell was doing before that, and if it's, you know, well, Caldwell, the team turned around a bit, that might save Caldwell, but then you look and it's like, well, the team turned around a bit because there was a new guy who came in, not necessarily because of Caldwell. And the Lions, you know, have been very, very up and down, but you do wonder if they're looking to get somebody who's even just a little bit more inspiring than Caldwell. Because this isn't a team that particularly needs that kind of Jim Caldwell stability. Like, this is a team that has a huge amount of talent and isn't getting the most out of it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them look for somebody who's going to shake things up a bit to actually try and take advantage of the weapons there. And I think particularly, they might want to do to change things just to try and uh, get Megatron to stick around. No, of course, yeah, because there is chat about that. And we'll, we'll do a bit more on the players' side of things coming out uh, of the back end of this playoff run. Like, there's a couple of other teams who still have openings. The Titans are filling a GM spot before they make a decision. Apparently, Mike Malarkey's a favourite. Eagles are obviously still looking. They've met with a low of people, 49ers, Browns, Giants, lots of interviews going on, no hiring been done. So the names that are kind of going around, we'll just have a brief chat if there's any of them that jump out to you. It's kind of Chip Kelly's getting a lot of bad press at the moment. People are saying poison to a franchise. Like, is he is he someone you think is gonna find a foothold somewhere? No, I think he might just have to take a year out. I doubt he'll go coordinator. If he's willing to swallow his pride, he might end up like Marone, who is obviously one of the other people currently getting a couple of looks around. Like, of the people who are available, Hugh Jackson is probably the most solid choice, the most highly sought mm. choice. And Tom Coughlin, coming back, getting interviews with the Eagles in San Francisco. So he's probably the most interesting choice of the rest of them. The rest yeah. of the names are, you know, a who's who of, like, solid coordinators and yeah. people with experience. Shanahan, think, Brown, Jackson, McAdoo, yeah. all those guys, McDermott. Like, yeah. That would I mean, be that. huge, I've got to say. That would be, like, going from Chip Kelly to Tom Coughlin. It would be yeah. hilarious. That'd be like, that you can't think of two more opposite coaches, could you? Well, his, his advanced sports science didn't work, so let's try the leeches. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I d- actually, I did see that uh, Doug Pedersen was being interviewed by the Eagles, which uh, I was laughing at the other day just because we were saying he's the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs at the moment, which I'm not going to lie. Like, while I'm a Chiefs fan, that's not exactly our strongest suit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, 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 like like we said as well, it ties back to an even earlier podcast. It's nice to see those terrible old Browns quarterbacks doing well. <clears throat> but yeah, there seems to be a lot of interviews and no decisions being made. And I think some of that's probably going to be due to the fact that the owners aren't there at the moment to make decisions. And that kind of brings us on to the next news point. What is going on with the owners? They're having a meeting in LA this week. There's a couple of issues that are going to be discussed at it. There's going to be shortening the tampering period of free agency from three to two days. No one gives a shit about that, right? No one cares about that. (laughs) The vote uh, on Wednesday about whether or not uh, teams will be able to trade compensatory picks. So that will be... Slightly relevant, but not hugely relevant. But the big one, yeah. From what I gather, that one is just going through without question. And I think the same is being done for the free agency element. Uh, But the big one now wasn't initially thought this was going to be decided here, but it's looking like there's going to be long discussions and some votes taken on the LA teams and the potential for three different teams moving to LA. So obviously, as we all know, it's the Rams, it's the Chargers, and it's the uh, the Raiders. There are multiple things at play here, multiple sites, multiple combinations, multiple problems. None of these teams have the votes to get themselves pushed through, but they all have enough votes to stop the other guys getting pushed through. So, uh, Rhoda, I suppose, do you want to take one of the bids and explain it to us and why there might be problems? The first thing to note is that all of these teams have, to some extent or another, and the NFL indeed, have basically been burning bridges quite successfully, I suppose, from the perspective of burning bridges. You have these two bids, and the one that the league probably favours most in terms of facilities is this Rams bid. It's a $2 billion investment in a stadium, 
uh, and the lot is generally considered to be in a more uh, a, a more attractive uh, like uh, area of LA. And the idea is like Kroenke, who's obviously a newer owner, is like really really intent on getting out of Rams, and has probably done the most to effectively give the middle finger to St. Louis. He's also so, already purchased the land. <laughs> when they gave their indication that they all wanted to move. Like the Chargers and the Raiders gave a kind of generic, we're, we're stating that we're leaving, like we're given notice. But the Rams like sent in this like multi-page document about all the ways that St. Louis had failed to like live up to their expectations and that they're like really happy to be leaving there effectively. This Rams bid is probably seen as the better bid in terms of the actual facilities and uh, the money and all that kind of stuff. Like this is like a, this would be kind of a, a showpiece stadium for the NFL to show off probably get a Super Bowl pretty soon within its lifetime. Yeah. And then obviously you have the Raiders Chargers bid. We can get Harry to give us an idea about that one. The Rams have this plot of land in Carson, isn't it? Yeah. In- uh, uh, Inglewood. Uh, sorry, Inglewood. So yeah, they're, they're the Inglewood bid. Yeah. So they've got a big patch of land in Inglewood and the other two are looking at building a stadium in Carson instead. Uh, so they prefer the Inglewood bid, uh, but apparently the big push from the league now is that they want, and a lot of the owners want it to be, a Chargers-Rams combined bid to take over that uh, that piece of land. Because then you'd have two quite rich organisations putting money into the development of this land. They've both got backgrounds in development. They would not have to restructure the leagues because they'd still be playing in separate divisions so there wouldn't be that issue surrounding it. Also, just that they think that that would mean a greater chance of success in the area because you'd have two sets of people in at this, what they see as a more viable area to place a stadium into. The problem with this obviously is that the Chargers have basically said flat no. The owner of the Chargers does not like Crocky at all. Uh, he does not want to deal with him. The owner of the Chargers is also a developer in his own right and wants to have the bid in the other area because then he would have control of developing the land surrounding it. The Rams have purchased all the land surrounding where they want to build in Inglewood so there'd be no scope for the Chargers to spread their wings there. But uh, it, it is very much a scenario. They seem to be looking to try and get them to combine bids. One, because it seems the most likely way for them to be able to push through uh, something actually happening. But secondly, because to move, each of them would have to pay about $300 million to the league as a moving fee. So... That would mean about $600 million to then be given to the third team or a large section given to the third team to try and fix their land. All right, there's, there's, the, there's the, uh, the, the Chargers Raiders idea. That's the one that's been kicked around for quite some time. Um, obviously, the as you said, basically out of Carson and the Raiders have obviously had a history uh, with LA. The problem remains, I think, particularly for the Raiders, in that while we've seen the Rams and the Chargers do a particularly you know good job, as you said, of burning bridges, and the NFL really piled into that, you haven't really seen the same thing happen with the Raiders. And you do wonder, like, again, what you were saying about the league's input. When you look at the league coming out and being very much like, oh, this is all a big thing. This is going to be the last thing in San Diego. This is going to be the last thing in, in St. Louis. Probably, maybe. It's been a lot quieter down in Oakland about what they're doing. And I just wonder if the league are actually, both as an organization and both as the owners, are actually that invested in having the Raiders move. And I think that's why you see this thing where, like, oh, well, why don't we put the Chargers and the Rams together and cut these guys out of it? Now, there's, as you said, there's reasons for that. There's obviously the personal connections between the league owners. I People don't like the Davises. This is not a controversial <laughs> statement. Uh, so there's some politics in there as well. But there is also the money factors. And you've got guys who will build, ideally, these sort of marquee uh, stadiums and this have this sort of area around it being something they can develop. And then you've got the Raiders, who are just a, a money pit of disaster and yeah. poop leaks. Yeah, and like to be honest, if you want to build a development that's going to make you some money, you don't want Raiders fans <laughs> hanging around there bringing down the property value. <laughs> 
Yeah, there is also obviously the other problem of the Raiders Chargers one where if they are sharing a stadium, they're going to have to do a league reorganisation because they can't have two teams in the same uh, conference and the same division playing in the same stadium at the same time. It seems that there's almost no way that it's going to be one team going or at least no way the decision is going to be made in the next week to a month where one team is going to be able to go. So we're going to be watching this very closely. As we say, this is an ongoing thing. It's happening literally as we speak to you right now. So by the time you listen to this, there might actually be a decision made on this. Um, but yeah, so lots of lots of stuff going on there. It could be quite interesting. So I think we're going to move on to looking at the games from last week. So yeah, we're going to have a look at the playoff games from last week. Uh, instead of our normal format of you know, neutral zone, dumpster fire, good game, uh, there's only four games. It seemed cruel to put them all into the dumpster fire <laughs> section, which is where they pretty much all were going to go anyway. So we'll start just in chronological order. Chiefs took on Houston and absolutely spanked the living shite out of them 30 to nil. The Chiefs won a playoff game 23 years, 23 years, and finally, although it wasn't really a playoff game, it was more of a demolition. It was the first playoff shutout in just over 10 years. Uh, Hoyer had a terrible, terrible day, so it's not all KC, but to be honest, you have to credit them somewhat. Like, if you stop a team from scoring, regardless of how bad a quarterback is, they'll normally manage to put something in there. Uh, He had four interceptions and a fumble recovered by the KC uh, team, which was obviously great. An injury to Matt which puts a bit of problems on us for, for, for going after a little bit of a deeper run but also an injury to J.J. Watt in the third uh, quarter on the exact same play I might add which is very surprising outside of everything else was the way that they managed to keep Watt out of this game he was there until the end of the third quarter and his entire stat line is he assisted in one tackle that was it for the whole game and minus two yards rushing yeah and minus two yards rushing from the most fantastic of all plays the Vince Wilford lead blocking for a wild cat to uh, JJ Watt it was it was fantastic so I suppose Ronald I'll come to you first on this what were your takeaways well JJ Watt was kept out of the game but not off of our screens yeah never off of our screens yeah like this is the kind of game where like Casey did basically what they needed to do barely like to be, fa- to be fair like with all of the turnovers that were in the first half the fact that Casey only racked up like basically Casey got a lot of points in the second half of the game when it was already dead but Really, with all the mistakes Houston were making, KC could have had a lot more points than this. Like, it, it, I know 30 nil sounds like a lot, but this could have been a significantly amount worse than actually was for Houston. But this is just, Houston just aren't a good team. And Brian Hoyer is not uh, a future quarterback. And to be fair, from a certain perspective, it's actually good for Houston, because now there won't really be any kind of like, oh, is Hoyer our starter enough? I think they'll definitely be looking at the quarterback market again uh, in the next season, and they can actually have a, a viable quarterback competition. Did you Whether see the Did you see the tweets from Mallet after the game? <laughs> like, Bet you wish you still had me now. But uh, everyone is pretty much certain it was a fake account because there was text that turned up before eleven a.m. on that account. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like basically for KC, they did what they needed to, do, and that's basically what they've done all season. They haven't necessarily blown teams away, but they've always done what's necessary, and. This game they did what's necessary and let Houston basically immolate themselves onto New England for KC and for Houston you know lots of question marks left but they're in the AFC side so they can't be too worried about not at least having a chance uh, to get to the wild card weekend again next year no that's it that's it and I suppose that Harry seeing as you you are a, you are a Pats fan like I get it's not really a game you can take a huge amount from tape wise and stuff because it is 
a scenario where I don't, I don't think anything really that happened in this game is going to be the same for the Patriots. They won't be running, you know, a defensive end. To, well, I suppose running back situation is not great. But yeah, Chandler Jones is running back. Why not? Except he's injured. But, other than but that. Uh, like, if you if you're looking at this game and you're trying to take some stuff away from tape, what would you be looking at? Given that you are a Patriots fan, of things to to keep an eye on. It's interesting because I think it is quite difficult to say because, like Roland said, Casey didn't really tip their hand that much. Yeah, they played just about well enough, and Houston helped them massively. Uh, obviously, I think we, you know I don't think we learned anything new. I mean, obviously Kelsey, we know when he wants to play, he can play a bit. Yeah. And that was that was good to see. Saw so the defense again is you know if you can't if, if you know if, if they get the pressure on the quarterback and they make rush decisions, they can really really punish you. And they did all through this mm. game. Uh, made a good staff against the run as well, but. Nothing, nothing, you know, nothing particularly new. Um, the one thing that will, I think, be interesting in New England when they look at the tape is looking at guys like Albert Wilson and Chris Conley. How did they play? Because yeah. Macklin may well not be there, and those are the guys we might we might need to deal with. Big Although time. I reckon, you know, going going forward, I think Casey are probably, I'd say, will go pretty run heavy. But we'll discuss that more. Yeah, when we'll have a chat about it later on. Yeah, when we come to the game. But yeah, no, it's interesting one because despite the fact that Casey pretty much were able to or had the opportunity to style on Houston. They still played quite tight. Took no chances. Oh yeah, really. there, there, there was no opening up of the playbook at all. Which I do. I'm, like obviously, it worries me somewhat when I see that. But it's also the there is no there is uh, no other half of the playbook. <laughs> there is. It's just it's underneath the overhang of uh, Andy's belly, so he can never get that far down the sheet. It's covered in barbecue uh, sauce. Like. <laughs> he's to wipe it off. But like there, there's also an element, especially in the second half, which was was what surprised me that it was doing that they were scoring more in the second half because I think in the second half they went to playing even less of the playbook to try and not show very much of what they would what they'd want to play in games that will actually be difficult but no like I said just nice to get that monkey off your back it's the first first uh, playoff win for the Chiefs I've ever seen as a Chiefs fan and the first one since I was like four years old so uh, that's that's always good to see we're going to move on to the next game now uh, Pittsburgh at Cincinnati it was a bit of a snoozer of the game for the most part like the Steelers were up 15 to nothing in the fourth quarter and then all of a sudden shit started to get real real quick 16-point swing, put the Bengals up by a point. There was an interception there that looked like it was going to close off the game for the Bengals. And then Hill fumbled the ball. In discipline then from Burfitt and Jones, which we're going to chat about quite a bit here, cost them the game. But moreover than just the players, there's indiscipline from the coaches and everything, from Munchak and Porter. And it was this for some reason was the most boring game for 50 minutes and then became the most bizarre clusterfuck I've ever seen so this was poor from both teams Harry like discipline yeah. and play <laughs> yeah. so which, which one do you want to deal with first the play or the indiscipline I'll go with the indiscipline because that's the less boring part yeah. I think. <laughs> absolutely shocking and I mean particularly from Pittsburgh's coaching stuff I mean look okay Tracy Porter once tried to get onto the Ravens team bus to fight Ray Lewis like, <laughs> I forgot that he's, <laughs> he's a nutcase um, so we can kind of see that but like Munchak like grabbing uh, Reggie Nelson's dreadlocks on the yeah. sideline like that is just and I know it's weird because it's something you're meant to say in that sort of weird coded commentary language about like those younger guys but just from an old experienced white guy that was a punk move yeah. like that was just dirty and sneaky and there was no need to try and do that and, like, do you think do you it think, is really funny when coaches get flat do you think that the do you think the hair grabs over things I think like it looked like he was trying to grab him but like the hair does go down quite far like maybe he was just grabbing him and he didn't mean to grab the hair but like he did still regardless try to grab another player I'm thinking once he got the hair he didn't let go of it like, yeah. he's got a wrap sort of wrapped around his hands like he's holding the clipboard mm. so that was pretty poor the referees you know I don't think necessarily did the best job uh, with, with that game there was a horrific hit on Gio Bernard oh, that was Jesus, not flagged yeah. 
Um, at the end, t- yes, okay, Pac-Man Jones probably should have kept stepping in. Pac-Man Jones and Tracy Porter shouldn't have had a fight. Like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's pretty redundant. But, like, Tracy Porter should also have been flagged. That penalty probably should have been offset because what the hell was he doing on yeah. the field in the first place? He's not meant to be there. So, like, I think there's been a focus given to the refs over the last two or three weeks to, instead of offset penalties, to try and target seeing who was involved first and calling them rather than then. So, you know, we complained about this beforehand. But about they, they always get the guy who retaliates yeah. because that's always the one they see yeah. first. But, that, but that was the thing. I think it is a response to that that we've discussed beforehand that they're now trying to find who goes first and then penalise them instead of offset. That may be the case, but then in that case, Tracy Porter should definitely have been mm. flagged because he was on the field exactly. in the first place, which, which caused the problem. Uh, obviously, Vontaze Burford had a meltdown, tried to murder Antonio Brown. That wasn't great. He's going to be suspended, which is... Three games. Yes. In AFC North games, it happens. This was... I think it was because it all happened in such a concentrated period and it just yeah. got so out of hand with the coaching staff getting involved that it seemed... You know, because these things happen during games. You'll see dirty hits. You'll see players get concussed. You'll see people lose their temper. When it all happens in a really rapid period of time at a crucial juncture of the game, it sort of accelerates it. But I think that, in a way is useful because it highlights like these things do happen week on week and we don't notice them because they're high profile hopefully unlikely this will give some kind of impetus again to the NFL to revisit what's going on with players headhunting and hopefully like some kind there'll be some kind of retroactive thing for I think it was Shazir for that hit on oh, Bernard yeah, that wasn't flagged because that was and Shazir actually had a, by mm. the way had a fantastic game otherwise mm. um, so did Burford actually so did Burford yeah, yeah he had an excellent game apart from then just losing his shit at the end absolutely lost the head concerning and I mean for Pittsburgh considering that their team is going to be perhaps lacking some in some positions going into the next game you'd be a bit worried if they're losing their discipline as well as losing players. No, of course, of course. I suppose we'll chat about the Pittsburgh guys in a second. Uh, before we move off the Bengals, because a lot of this is on the Bengals, what do you think, Ronan, is the impact of this moving forward for the Bengals? Because we've heard people saying, stories have come out of the locker room to say this has been going on the whole time and it hasn't been kept in check by their head coaches and that that's a, something that's on them. Or is it something where they're going to need to bring in people to be disciplinarians? Is this something that you put as a lack of leadership from the coaching staff? Or is it that they have a lack of leadership within the locker room player-wise to kind of say, lads, get your shit together, look. I think it's kind of weird because this is uh, the culmination almost of Cincinnati. Because Cincinnati, for a long period under uh, the current owner, Paul Bryant, were a bit of a soft team, a bit of an easy pick-off. And that's when the Pittsburgh Ravens kind of uh, rivalry emerged. And what the Cincinnati Bengals seem to have done over the last four or five years is try to like be like the traditional Pittsburgh type of defense, yeah. be that tough team who goes into other play- other people's stadiums and like bullies them around and like plays on the very edge of what you can get away with. Because obviously Pittsburgh has had that reputation for a very long time. It's moved away from the last couple of years when it's become more offense heavy around Big Ben, but obviously traditionally they were seen as a defensive juggernaut, which was always playing on the very edge of what you could or could not do. And the Ravens as well have done that. So there's kind of this whole like AFC North persona, excepting the Browns of course, of they being these like tough defensive like units who play on the edge and play mm. tough. And what we're seeing here is that as the NFL tries to cut this stuff out legitimately, the concussions and all and all those things have emerged, like that's just not going to fly anymore. But then you're kind of left in a tough situation where the people who you've brought in, to some degree, very successfully to change the persona of the Cincinnati team to make it a tougher team, are now the problem. And now the the coach Marvin Lewis is kind of so is like is unlikely to change it because this is his team. If he admits that these two players are now a problem, he's admitting that he has a massive problem. And I think at this point, we're probably going to see this keep going. And if they keep making the postseason, it's going to be very difficult 
to dunk Marvin Lewis. So how many, how many playoff appearances without a win can he manage? Because this is now eight. He's now got the most. Yeah, but when you get into the postseason, it's really tough to like make that move and say, okay, he's he's obviously built a really good roster. He's done really well and got us to the playoffs X amount of times. Like most coaches don't get their teams to the playoffs. Like obviously he he's gotten them to the playoffs so many times. And before he came in. The Bengals were a joke for so long that there's kind of, I think there's like, maybe this will be the year, I don't think so, but it's just this kind of tough situation where he's done such a, like, Cincinnati Bengals have done such a good job of building in so many ways and actually getting in the AFC North thick of it to, like, to miss by these such fine margins at this such crucial high profile times makes it incredibly difficult for this team to move. And that's basically what we've seen for the last three, four years. They've just been stuck in this kind of limbo of being good. Not, not good enough. Um, yeah, no, no. Like we were, I was discussing this in work with two of the guys earlier. We were just kind of laughing, going, "Yeah, it's all that hard, hard nose kind of AFC North." And then like the Browns are that, that nice kid who's fallen in with a bad crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was listening to some of the analysts on NFL. One of the chaps who used to play for the Steelers was on, and he was saying five years ago what these guys are doing, we were doing, and it wasn't being called. But the thing is, the game's moved on from that. And I think you're right, Fitz. I think it is a reaction to how that division plays. But that's how that division played four or five years ago when the game wasn't so player safety conscious and stuff. And I think they are going to have to make adjustments if they want to succeed. But the end point of this, hang, this is what you were chatting about earlier, is that this has caused a lot of potential upset and problems for Pittsburgh moving on from this game. They've got Big Ben injured, which we'll discuss later on. They've also got Antonio Brown, who's currently having his head surgically reattached, uh, from, from what I gather. But like, is, that, is that a Spencer Lanning's revenge? <laughs> So what do you reckon now is the impact of this on Pittsburgh? We'll talk more in depth about what's going on, but like, how do they recover from this game and get their heads right for now going into face another tough defence? It's a difficult position for Pittsburgh because, again, like you say, they're going to that tough defence. They're going to be without their best offensive weapon and Roethlisberger is going to be hobbled. What they'll be hoping is that their opponents have Similar enough problems, but we'll come to that. But for Pittsburgh, the idea is, look, the margin for error for them with those injuries has become incredibly small. And as we discuss a lot, and as I think as one of Ronan's favourite phrases, is the margins are very fine and the games swing on one or two plays. And when you're in a position where the margin has diminished even more so because of injuries, the last thing you need is indiscipline that can tip the game over that edge and into your opponent's favour. Because that's the thing that can cost them the game. They get those flags. They are going to go up against one of the most protected quarterbacks in the league. You do not want to be in a position where you're getting getting unnecessary penalties. And I think this is going to have to start with Mike Tomlin, who, as we know himself, has perhaps had some discipline problems wandering onto the pitch and all that kind He's of He's just a little bit bad at special awareness. <laughs> But you know, Pittsburgh are going to have to be very, very careful next week, and I think this is something that the coaching staff is going to have to give not only the players but also themselves to kick up the arse about. Because if this thing happens, this could this is the sort of thing that could lose them a game. No, of course. Uh, like hopefully the one plus for them might be that they kind of unite around the fact they just had a brutally tough game with dirty play and they managed to get through it and stuff. The big one I always think, uh, just looking at this for them from the Bengals' perspective, I remember hearing in the uh, press conference after the game that the the real problem was. When Pittsburgh were on the field, there was no rain whatsoever. But when the Bengals were on the field, there was rain all the time. Did you hear that? That is that is this is the excuse given by the quarterback. What by McCarron? Like, well, he's he's, he's not a bright lad. I mean, he's not. He's he's come out and he's literally said the weather was against us. So yeah, we'll chat more about Pittsburgh moving forward. But yeah, Bengals, you know, you've 
had a good run so far, but get your shit sorted out. That is a that is a potentially problematic organization top to bottom if they don't get that stuff sorted uh, going into next year. So the next game we're going to look at is the uh, one that had Ronan so excited. Uh, Seattle at Minnesota, a ten to nine game. Horrible temperatures for a horrible game. Uh, just to put it in context for all of our mostly European listeners, so. You saw zero degrees and minus three degrees. We kind of thought, that's not too bad. Sure, look, I've been out in that. That's Fahrenheit, buddies. So minus three degrees Fahrenheit is minus 19 and a half degrees Celsius. So even without wind chill, it was minus 17.7 degrees there on the field. That was horrendous. In a game where running should have been key and a bit of hard-nosed football, it just didn't happen. Adrian Peterson had 23 carries for 45 yards, which is terrible, right? But then you factor in that his long was 13 yards. <laughs> So what he actually had, if you take that one out, is 22 carries for 32 yards. He had less than 1.1 yard a carry. Michael wasn't much better, to be honest. He was 21 rushes for 70 yards and a long of 13. He was averaging about 3, 3.5. So not terrible, but not what you need in that kind of scenario. Minnesota had a 9-0 margin going into the fourth quarter. We were kind of sitting there going, it's kind of fun to make them pretend they're all dragons because their breath is frosting. <laughs> like That was about the highlight of watching the game. Oh, and like texting no end of abuse to Fitz down in Cork. But then it all turned around. The Seahawks botched a snap and Russell Wilson made Russell Wilson magic happen. And then coming into the dying seconds where they should have just lost the game, places out. out yeah. Einhorn is Finkel. Finkel is Einhorn. I did like the story, though, that it was so cold, the pitch. You know the giant flaming horn the Vikings have? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so they brought that out. It cracked. Uh, because the cold on the outside and the hot on the inside caused the whole thing to crack symbolic Um, I'll ask Harry this one uh, is there anything we can take out of this game like similar to the Chiefs one it's kind of that thing of this is not going to be the scenario for any of the other playoff games Uh, what can we take out of this game playing in the cold is hard Doug Baldwin can make nice catches oh yeah I forgot about that catch that was an amazing catch yeah that was an amazing catch Jesus truly loves Russell Wilson like it was a surreal game Seattle did Absolutely nothing for vast periods of the game. Minnesota did marginally less nothing. Seemed fairly content to just field goal it out on the basis of the fact of how hard it was to move the ball. And to be fair, probably should have won the game, but for an absolute freak at the yeah. end. You know, you'd look at that initially and be like, well, that was a really poor performance. And it was a really poor performance from Seattle. But again, you consider that. Consider that it was, I think, with the wind chill at the coldest point, it was like minus 27 Celsius. Yeah. Consider all the things that were just generally going wrong with them and how hard it was to play the game. Their punter got crocked immediately and punts were going the punts were going like 20 yards for Seattle it's just going to be a case of you know put this aside it was a thing that happened we got lucky we got through next game their opponents are going to be looking at that going well look there's absolutely nothing this game is going to tell us about a game that isn't played in these conditions and for Minnesota yeah to actually it's just it's, it's heartbreaking it yeah. actually is a little bit heartbreaking for them that's true and to be fair this, this, this says a lot to me as well like I look if you look online and stuff afterwards like You'd expect in this scenario, everyone's going to fucking kill the punter or kill the kicker for what he's doing. So, right, a lot of people up online defending him, going, "Look, we should have left it down to this point. Maybe like we shouldn't have fumbled the ball. We should have X, Y, and Z." Like they were kind of like just going, "Look, it was a shitty situation." And to be fair, all nine points came from him, right? And there was people defending him. Whereas, did you see what happened with Brian Hoyer after the game? All the fans oh, went on and started attacking him on Twitter. Right? My personal favorite of how horrible your fans are: get your shit together, Texas, right? They had, he posted the thing up on September 11th going, you know, oh, you know, never forget, you know, trios, you know, never forget. And then they went back through all his tweets to reply to them all to give him shit. 
the tweet that I saw online about it afterwards was uh, someone responded to his like remember 9-11 tweet by saying I wish you were one of those towers yeah the Houston fan base aren't very nice do you remember when they turned up outside Matt Schaub's house yeah like, like they don't are, don't they do are that. That's illegal. Like, that, that is illegal. Don't and, do that. And like, this is the thing, right? It'd be one thing if they were like a really successful team who couldn't deal with losing, right? But there's no way you can't be that... Expe- like, expect to not lose the odd game when you're a Texans fan. Yeah, like, both of these quarterbacks have got your team to playoff games. Jesus it's Christ. Like, but yeah, I, I suppose I'll go to you, Fitz, given that this is, your, this is your game. Like, it's a sad day for the Vikings, obviously, but like, is it what, what can they take out of this to build on going forward? Something I think Teddy Bridgewater looked quite good in the back end of this game, and what is horrendous conditions for passing. He started to. And I, I'm not his biggest fan, but I thought he looked quite decent in this game. Uh, Adrian Peterson didn't look fantastic, and his fumbleitis came out again. But like, what would you say if you were a Vikings fan? What would you take <laughs> out of this game? What would you be doing afterwards? Well, firstly, the defense was good. Like after. Getting a sh- like after uh, like letting Seahawks like walk all over them in the game during the regular season, they got their pieces back. And Everson Griffin had uh, a monster game. Like he he was in the backfield all game, making Russell Wilson do those kind of magician moves. And obviously Russell Wilson felt the pressure. And not only were the conditions bad, like the conditions obviously contributed somewhat. But in those conditions, Russell Wilson was high pointing the ball, was missing open receivers and rarely looked dangerous, or at least as dangerous as he can be. So I think from that perspective, defensively, they've, they've known they have a young core there that they can work on, and they have nothing to take from this game that makes them feel uh, that that might be any different now, especially considering that the only big play that they get away is just like one of those plays where you just can't account for it. It's like, yeah, everyone's, everyone's going to swarm the ball on Why that kind of snap. And then it's like Tyler Lockett is like, open in the middle of the field. Like, I like I don't blame you if it's like freezing that you might want to stop uh, when when you're you know, when you should be sacking someone. Yeah. On the offensive side, Adrian Peterson he fumbled again. It's terrible, but he is still a good running back. They'll probably keep him for one more year, I'd say at least. And for Teddy Bridgewater, I think they just need to keep building the pieces around him to give him a chance to be a game man. I don't think this is going to be his team next year, but we should see growth from him as a passer and a bit more responsibility given to him. Like Stefan Diggs was a good start this week, this year in the draft, but I think they just need a few more weapons around him to kind of push him on and kind of keep building that offensive line. I think like this is a good, solid team built from the ground up in the same way that Kansas City have been, in the same way to this, like the Seahawks have been. So they have a lot of hope to look for. It's just that I'm making over the hump because Minnesota... Uh, have plenty of uh, horrific uh, playoff uh, history to work off as well, and this is, this will probably go down as one of the uh, top five at least. For the Seahawks, because I want to briefly talk about the Seahawks if possible. Like I would just say, like the like the defense was really good, and in particular note was Michael Bennett. Like he spent more time in the Minnesota backfield than Adrian Peterson. <laughs> so I can, so can I can I actually like, can, can I ask you one question, Because I saw the injury report that came out. Carol said he has a strawberry on his knee. What does that mean? Uh, I'm not sure. Like I know he has a he's a stub toe injury. Effectively, that's been a dealing with all with all season. But he ha- he has actually been playing through knocks basically all season. But he kind of just describes it like I have to get my I have to get like wet like pay for the weddings for my children or for my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna keep playing anyway because he is playing. He is probably out playing his contract right now, and he and like he's still under contract for a couple of years. So he's looking for that next big contract. Probably. Ah, fair enough. Yeah. But he was using swim moves all day to get into the backfield. And, you know, I just want to note that, like, yeah, the Seahawks defense was good, but Michael Bennett in particular was spectacular. 
Yeah, so on to the final game then, Green Bay-Washington, 35-18. to Probably the closest thing that resembled a game this weekend. Uh, Washington pushed ahead early, uh, but then with a mistake from Deshaun Jackson, meant they were only up by 11 points. Only up by 11 points. Green Bay started terribly, going 1-for-8 in their first uh, six tries. Uh, their first four drives went punt, safety, punt, punt, for a collection of 11 yards in the first quarter. Then they swapped to an up-tempo game and started to get some traction. Uh, their ground game was running quite nicely. They got 141 yards on the ground and they got a pair of touchdowns from Fat Lacey and Starks they got 210 through the air and two touchdowns one from Adams and one from Cobb the other thing that was a big surprise in this game probably how different the defences were Green Bay managed to get six sacks in this game and although I do think that's padded slightly towards the back end when they were trying to push it a bit more versus one sack for Washington so well done to the Green Bay line they play quite well so I suppose Harry I'll come to you on this one first what changed for Green Bay in this game versus what we've seen so far I think you put your finger on it, and I think it was only in a certain part of the game you saw it changing. They changed the tempo. They changed the way they were playing, and I think they perhaps were able to get away with it against a less experienced Washington team. And a Washington team that struggled to get its own defence going. So Rodgers, we saw the O-line stepped up, played its best game it's had in a while, and that facilitated Rodgers to look like the quarterback we know he is and we know he can be, and that wasn't even him at his best. You know, that was like pretty average Aaron Rodgers, and it was enough to comfortably win the game. Uh, for Washington, they just looked a little bit, you know, they looked a little bit out of sorts there. Offense wasn't clicking in the way it had before. The Green Bay defense stepped up a bit, but I don't think in the same way that we saw the offense do. And I think we saw them do things a little bit differently as well. They got the running game going. They did things differently. They kept putting Randall Cobb in the backfield. He had a, a, quite a few carries in this game, and also mm-hmm. sort of uh, just dummying him being in there, Lacey and Starks. They mixed it up a lot more. They kept Washington off balance and uh, guessing. And sort of just took advantage of where they knew the weaknesses were going to be. Like we saw some individual units step up, which is what you want to see in the playoff time. But I think we also saw them change the way they played, adapt within a game, which is something they've struggled to do, and not be entirely reliant on Rodgers. Give him some space, get that running game going, make that running game a little more interesting, a little more challenging. Make teams prepare for that and then give Rodgers that little extra half a second, that little bit of extra time and space he needs to do the magical things he can do. No, of course. I suppose, Ronan, you like that? Was it Cousins or a supporting cast that kind of let down Washington in this? I think there's plenty of blame to go around for everyone. I don't think the defence lived up to what it could have been, especially uh, as the game went on. In particular, there was one play uh, early on in the game where Deshaun Jackson basically stepped out of bounds uh, just outside the uh, ju- just outside of the end zone where he really the should have he didn't even <laughs> reach his hand out and it would have been a touchdown. And, I think that, and then uh, the Green Bay Packers managed to get them three and out on the ensuing goal line stand. That was a major change of momentum for the game at a point in which Washington seemed to be getting rolling at that point and looked like that this could have been, uh, like basically Green Bay had been advertised as out of sorts and a team that isn't going to live up to anything. Obviously it was picked against by a lot of people last week uh, and that it looked like that was about to be fulfilled. And then after that, Washington seemed to fall apart. Because like, the problem is that Washington has a lot of young pieces. It's not an experienced team. And it hasn't proven that it can beat a winning team so far. Like It didn't beat a single team with a winning record during the yeah. season. So this is a team which still has a lot of question marks and about it when it comes to elite things. Like You saw that inexperience both from the coaching, because it's quite a young coaching staff as well, and from the player perspective, when Aaron Rodgers was able to manipulate them in a way which he hadn't been able to do for uh, a while uh, this season. He was doing it earlier on the season, not so much recently, mm-hmm. where he was getting those 12 men, men on the field and being able to get free plays. And that happened me- several times in the game, and it kind of showed both a team and a coaching staff which just wasn't ready for this, which didn't seem to have the noose and the knowledge 
to take on all the team which could use that experience against them, which has done this before. And it just kind of seems that Washington, they're just, they're just not there yet. But this kind of brings up the, the, the next question I was going to ask. Like, is this, is this just a thing of it's a weak NFC East and it's a weak NFC East team that they're able to exploit? Or is this the Packers finding a rhythm where they're getting back to what they used to be able to do? Is this a Packers team that were exploiting a weak NFC East team? Or is this a Packers team that if they do this can then compete again against other competition? I think the question there is, because obviously this is how they want to play and this is how they can play and this one they're very dangerous. The question is, can the personnel do it again, particularly the O-line? Can they play at that level? Because the level they play, it is always very difficult to say, oh, they're doing against this team, can they do it against this team? Because you're facing different players, different schemes, different things like that. But if the O-line can buy Aaron Rodgers' time like they did in this game, that is the blueprint for them to be at least competitive, no matter who they're playing. Could they have done this against any of the other wildcard teams? Maybe, because again, Washington don't perhaps have the best pass rush in the world. But it's certainly what they'll want to be doing, and I think that's what uh, will probably be a point of emphasis for them going forward next week into what is going to be, as we'll discuss later, a much more difficult game for them. No, of course, of course. I think, Connor, what you're really asking is, is Green Bay legit? <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's not asking That's definitely not a question I'm asking. And uh, <laughs> on that note, we're going to move on to listeners' questions. <laughs> So we're going to quickly run through one question this week. Reunited and it feels so good. The Ryan brothers are now going to be coaching together in Buffalo. Uh, this thing is literally turning itself into some kind of reality TV show. He's not been hired as defensive coordinator though. He's been hired as assistant head coach for defense. Uh, which obviously is going to put the, the defensive coordinator in a bit of a weird spot where his boss's brother is kind of his boss. So how do we see this one playing out, guys? Well, it's interesting that you said this is becoming more of a reality TV show because I gather that the NFL has a reality TV show. Mm. Hard Knocks in Buffalo, man. I know, it would be amazing. Here, here. Tell me you don't see this. I think, you know what Rex Ryan has done is... But I don't want to say smart. I think it's interesting. Because you give Rob Ryan this kind of makey-uppy title where his role is pretty unclear... Given Rob Ryan's difficulties with managing defences recently, you've got him in a role where he has perhaps as much input or responsibility as you feel is reasonable to give him. Mm. Uh, which, you know, could work, because obviously the guy has had things to offer in the past and is definitely useful to have. My concern is that how much of his... Well, one of two things I think the concern. I think the concern is that Rex ends up giving him too much of his ear and that could lead to problems not only just in terms of the defensive side of his role, but also the assistant head coach side of his role, mm. which could be interesting. Uh, and not in a good way. The other thing is that they both just get drunk and start punching each other again, which would be amazing. Hilarious. I would love that. That would I be love hilarious. That so much. I think it's one of those things. It's difficult to know exactly what's going to come of it, other than the potential for an excellent season of hard knocks. That's true. Fitz, what about yourself? Yeah, this is a. Uh, if this wasn't going to be a make or break season for Rex Ryan, doing this has basically just signed his warrant that if they don't make the playoffs this year, he's out and stone. I think the other thing is that like this year, the defensive. Stars on the Bills have been criticizing Rex Ryan for his overcomplicated defense, which doesn't do enough like standard kind of uh, plays, which just let them play the game. There's a lot of like technical detail and kind of complex scheming going on there, which is exactly what Rob Ryan that we just chased out of New Orleans for doing, for taking a defense which was very limited and trying to basically make it do things which it was never designed to be, rather than playing to the strengths of the actual players that he had. Mario Williams, from the rumours that have been going out the last couple of weeks, is probably gone. Marcel Darius has been criticising them, so he could be gone in free agency. So this could be a case not only where this could end up being a disastrous situation for uh, the, the Ryan brothers as coaches, 
But this could be disastrous for the Bills in the long term because they could end up losing two really good defensive players because they just don't happen to suit what these Ryan brothers are trying to do, which again and again has been shown to be much less effective than they think it is. Is this going to sink the Bills for another two or three years? And is that deserving? The Bills don't deserve that. They're sad enough already. It's not Brian's level, but yeah, it's getting up there. Yeah, no. It'll be interesting to see. And like I said, hopefully... like. Best case scenario, it works okay for their defense. Middle case scenario, it's as it is beforehand, and he's now got a patsy he can throw under the bus whenever it doesn't work <laughs> next year, and just continue that sibling rivalry. And best case scenario, they get on hard knocks, they have fist fights. It would be amazing. Thanks to Michael for that question, actually. And uh, now we're going to move on to the most important thing: the games for next week. So we've hit the divisional rounds. We've got four games this week to look at. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. Obviously, uh, top-end football. So we'll kick off, I suppose, with uh, Casey at New England. The important things to look at this is, obviously, the main one's going to be injuries. Jeremy Macklin got injured in the game last week. Uh, it's now an ankle sprain. There was quite a good-sounding press conference on it today saying that it wasn't actually a particularly serious one either, so he is very much day-to-day and might be there. Although, I don't know how much I trust those kind of things anyway whenever I hear them. <laughs> I think everyone just kind of goes, oh, let's just make them believe that they're preparing for every possible inevitability. New England are expecting back a number of starters now. Edelman, Vollmer, Jones, and Hightower are probably the four main ones that I'm thinking of. There's obviously a plus to having them back but I think there's also a possible negative in a lot of these guys haven't played in a while as well so there could be problems with that whether they're 100% or on snap counts things like that can play into it but it's a, it means it's going to be a significantly tougher game than say the last couple of games were for New England's opponents given that they were missing these players at that point yeah essentially I don't see a huge amount of run game coming out of New England in general at the moment I think it's strength v strength what it's going to be New England's offence Tom Brady Gronkowski Edelman and Amandola and all those guys against the defence of the Chiefs is going to be the main conflict in here and whether or not that line can hold up Falmer's return is going to help against that pass rush it's going to be a tough game I think I think it's going to be a lot of defensive moves a lot of sacks a lot of turnovers a lot of pressure so it's not going to be an easy one to call as you'd imagine I'm going to go for the Chiefs in this one Uh, I think the defense will hold up I think they'll do enough on offense uh, although I am obviously concerned with some of the some of the injuries Uh, Harry I suppose as a New England fan what's your take on it Pretty much as you say, um, to a large extent, I'm less comfortable with Macklin coming back, which I actually think will be a big factor in it. Like I think Macklin is sort of a game-breaking talent. We could probably handle Wilson and Conley. I think we will see a big run game out of Kansas City, so a huge amount of it will be whether or not, like particularly Dodd Hightower coming back, and whether or not he will be at the level we need pretty, him to be at. Pretty sure he accounts for about ninety percent of your run defense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, um, yeah, pretty much. Like, obviously, Drob Mayo has declined significantly, and Jamie Collins is fantastic in a lot of ways, but he's not—he's not a run stuffer kind of guy. Yeah. It's not going to be easy for us, and I'm not like hugely confident to be honest taking us. But I think that we've got enough coming back to make the difference. Vollmer, as you said, is going to be huge. Like, the O-line had its difficulties, and when Volmer went down, it was just bad, because he had been, I think, probably our best O-lineman this season. Losing him, big, big blow in terms of protection of Tom Brady, just in terms of general leadership on that line as well. Um, obviously, getting Edelman back, getting that security blank, and getting that guy with that chemistry and understanding with Tom Brady is going to be critical. If we have him back, he's a very difficult guy to cover, even with the talent that Kansas City have in the backfield. Other thing I think that's going to be very, very important for New England is, is Devin McCourty back up to speed? You would hope so with the week off. But what he adds in coverage in that backfield is enormous. And the confidence and the things he, his, him being up to speed allows the cornerbacks to do 
is very, very no, of course, important. Because you pointed out to us when we were watching your house the other day, uh, the, the, the Week 17 game, you could see the lack of the first step there with him. So obviously, if he has that back, that's a big plus for them. The other thing as well I spotted, which uh, is obviously a worrying sign, uh, Edelman has already got his uh, playoff beard on. Uh, what about yourself, Ronan? What are you looking at in this game? With New England, there's a lot of question marks there with all those players back. And the week off means they could be a little bit more. I think like Bill Belichick kind of called it himself when he said like, this Kansas City team, there is no, there's no real weakness. There's no specific thing to exploit which you can go. That's the way you be, beat Kansas City. They're just a good all-round team that does plenty of things well. The one thing I would say for Kansas City, even if Jerry Mack is on, is that all season they've proven that they can fit players into their scheme and they can still continue to be effective. They put D Ford in there instead of Justin Houston, and he he played really really well. And obviously the big one earlier in the season is that they lost Jamal Charles, you know, an, an all-pro running back. They put in Jerkandrick West, who had some hype about him, especially from you, Connor. Spencer Ware, like a former running back, fullback kind of hybrid, brought from Seattle. I think they've shown again and again Kansas City this this year that they can do what's necessary even when they lose some of their major pieces and that they're a very resilient team. And I think with the form that they're on and the belief that they have and the way that they'll be able to make Tom Brady's life incredibly difficult, I think they should have enough to take on a New England offense when it's still going to be coming out of, out of basically coming out of, out of kind of a rusty situation. Like, I think New England at full throttle might have enough to take on this KC defense, but I think right now, with all the question marks, I think the KC defense will do enough to suffocate this game, and then Alex Smith and the run game will do enough will do enough against what is a, he's a good New England defense, but perhaps has those question marks due to injuries again. Uh, with McCarthy with High Tower, that they they should do enough. Yeah, no, of course I agree with you entirely. I think it is going to be probably the best game this weekend, possibly one of the best games that we're going to see in these playoffs. I suppose what 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 would we take on scores on this one? So I'm taking I'm taking New England. I or I'm taking I'm not taking New England. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking Kansas City. I'm thinking something in the region of about like. 27 to 21, 27 to 20 uh, kind of area. Yeah, I probably see it being similarly close, probably New England's favour. I'd say something like around 24, 21, something in and around that region. Probably not exactly that because I reckon there actually be a lot of field goals in this game, but I can't bother doing the maths. So yeah. in and around that. Uh, what about yourself? <laughs> uh, yeah, like something in that area, kind of like high teens to like mid 20s, probably a 3 to 7 point gap. Yeah, fair enough. So we've got two of us taking KC, one of us taking New England. Next game we're going to look at is Green Bay at Arizona. What we have to say here is Green Bay are coming up against a much more complete team defensively than they saw out of the out of the Washington team. Also, given, I think Harry mentioned this earlier, I think there's experience on this Arizona team to not crumble in spots where they see people changing personnel and not getting as much time as they'd like. It was 38-8 to when they last played each other in this uh, exact same scenario. Green Bay have looked much better in the wildcard game, but again, Arizona, I think, will have the have the ability in the top to, top to bottom roster to deal with it. They did falter in Week 17 when they fell to the Seahawks, but I think there was an element in that game of not having much to play for. They weren't really there wasn't a huge amount for them to be invested in that, apart from a slightly better record and no better seeding in the in the thing. This is an Arizona team that's rested, that is skilled, that is experienced, that is multifaceted and very, very balanced. And I think Green Bay, while better, are not a 30-point swing better from when they last met in this exact same scenario. So I'm going to be taking uh, Arizona, and I'm going to be expecting a scoreline of something in the region of 38-24. to 24. Uh, I think the score might be a little closer than that. I'd 
say maybe looking at sort of high 30s Arizona, sorry, low 30s Arizona, high 20s Green Bay. Again, like you say, Arizona's defense aren't going to be as exploitable as Washington's was. I think we're going to see um, Green Bay perhaps, despite having figured out what they need to do a bit better, they're going to struggle to get the guys open against uh, cornerbacks who are basically just better than, than Washington's Pat Bashad Breland aside. The other critical thing I think for Green Bay is in terms of the O-line, Clays Campbell did an absolute wrecking job on them last time. He hasn't been the most consistent this season, but even if Green Bay's O-line step up, they're going to have to step up a huge amount to get to the level where they're going to be able to contain guys like him, guys like Freeney. That said, we don't really know where Arizona are because, and this is what I think gives Green Bay a bit of hope, yeah, obviously the week off can make teams rusty. Also, we saw an absolutely feckless performance from Arizona in Week 17 where they got trounced, and deservedly so. So you do wonder, like, they basically had two weeks where they weren't playing that either at all or that hard. So there could be a little bit of rust there that they might need to shake off. But again, you've got to trust a guy like Bruce Arians is going to get that team motivated the, the, and the, get the, them up for this. All I can think of when you're saying that is I was thinking of myself as the idea of, like, you know when an old person sits down and they find it really hard to get back up out of a chair? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what about yourself, Fitz? Yeah, I don't, I don't even think this will be close. I think Arizona are going to come out... And they're going to do what Washington looked like they might have done, like they were going to do in that first quarter. I think Arizona have the offensive weapons to take apart uh, an average Green Bay defense. I think basically Green Bay had a false start against Washington, who aren't a very good team. Arizona are a good team. And Carson Palmer, even if they get some pressure on has shown previously that he can still be really effective. I'm thinking that mid, like mid-season Seahawks game where he got hit a lot, but was still making massive plays. I think with all the offensive weapons that Arizona have on, have like incredibly effective receivers, I think we'll probably see a blowout here. Uh, not not perhaps with the KC Houston variety. I think Green Bay will get some points, but I don't think this will be close. I'd say like 10, 30, that kind of range. It's because with the controversial call, Green Bay will get some points in this game, but that's uh, brave, man. That's brave. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've said about 38, 24, so about a 14-point margin of victory for them. You're saying they're going to win by about 20 points and the guys aren't going to break... That, they, that Green Bay aren't going to break 20 points in this game. What do you think? And like I said, I'd say it probably being within sort of six, seven points kind of range with uh, Green Bay in perhaps the mid to upper 20s and Arizona in the low 30s. Okay, fair enough. So you think it's going to be a bit more close again? I think, I think, I think we'll be a bit closer. I think we're going to see a better Green Bay team than we have, but yeah, not good enough to beat. Arizona. Fair enough, fair enough. The next game we're going to look at, and this is one that's close to Fitz's heart and to his pants, uh, all the text <laughs> messages about his erections we were getting over the weekend or anything to go by. Seattle at Carolina. Uh, this is a very interesting, exciting game. I think this is going to be very enjoyable to watch. Uh, so both high-powered offenses and very strong defenses. A large element in this to me at the moment is that we've got Stewart is going to be back for the Panthers, but we still got a lot of question marks over Lynch for the Seahawks, and I think that is quite important. As good as Christine Michael has been, I think that Lynch is a big, big difference maker for them. Panthers Panthers beat the Seahawks at home in Week 6. They're very different teams now. Well, Seahawks are a different team now. I think Carolina are probably, if anything, the same, if not maybe a little bit better. There's some interesting matchups here like presumably Norman's going to be on Baldwin uh, maybe the odd time on that head or whatever but yeah I'm expecting a very very good defensive game with lots of big plays I think there's going to be lots of trench warfare and then a couple of big plays on both sides where they get stuff off Uh, I'm calling this one a tight one I'm going to say it's going to be 28 to 24 for the Panthers 
I'm going to give a number of, I'm going to say, 23 to 18 for the Panthers. Okay. Uh, I can see the defenses uh, standing out in this game. We know these two teams are two very good defenses, though. But I think we're going to see more tightness on defense, given the scale of the occasion and given the, uh, the, the pressure situation I think both teams are in. Like you say, I think the return of Stewart is critical because not only does that give them a more established run game, which has just been a huge problem for Carolina recently, it also gives that option that then creates the space that lets Cam Newton do his thing a bit more effectively because you don't know what he's going to do, which lets him run more effectively. And also, can Seattle contain Greg Olson? Like, they have continued to struggle against those big tight ends. Also, with Stewart back in and the run game working, Olsen's actually been blocking a lot towards the tail end of the season, which he's quite good at, but he was more and more uh, in, in protection because Newton, they knew Newton was going to pass. Now you take that away, you free up the option to have a guy like Olsen who exploits the Seahawks' weakness go down the field more. So that's one of those things I think will tip the balance towards Carolina versus what we've seen out of Carolina over the last few weeks. Now, with that said, you never know with the Seattle team. They are motivated. They are in form. If they get lynched back, that could again be a deciding factor. Baldwin's playing incredibly well. Russell Wilson's been playing incredibly well, so you can't write them off, but I just think Carolina have a little bit more on both sides of the ball still at this stage. What about yourself, Fitz? Yeah, like I would agree that it's going to be a great game, fairly close game, like just like all the games between Seattle and Carolina have been. Like They're effectively like division rivals at this point. They've played each other at least once every season for the last four seasons, I believe. Ah, oh, like us and the Bills. So, yeah, and like I think Harry picked, up, picked out what would be one of the key matchups will be Cam Chancellor against uh, Greg Olson, Cam Chancellor obviously strong safety. We will probably have, have been coverage against Greg Olson, and that was a key matchup in the last one, last uh, game where Greg Olson on a seam route won uh, the game for Carolina on the last throw, effectively, of the game. The reason I would give Seattle the edge, say by about three points, is because I think that this is a very different Seattle team. This is a really hot Seattle team. What we saw with this Seahawks team is that Russell Wilson has grown into, has gone from a game manager to one of the elite quarterbacks this season. And this is now Russell Wilson's team, Russell Wilson's offense. And what we've seen is that that has blossomed into an incredibly effective offense where Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett and Luke Wilson have all looked like much better than perhaps most people would rate them. I think like these are two incredibly tough defenses. But I think that the Seahawks have that kind of uh, that form coming in, which may be enough just to get them over Carolina. Like Carolina's home advantage is like is much vaunted, kind of in t- general terms. But the Seahawks have actually gone into Carolina and won several times over the last few seasons. So I don't think the Seahawks are scared of playing in Carolina at all. So what are what are we thinking score wise? And I'm going 28-24. You're going sticking with 23-18 with two point conversion. Yeah, not sure why, but there will be one. 17-20. 17-20. Fair enough. So, yeah, so tight enough our games for all of us. Uh, the final game we're going to look at, and probably the one that has the most question marks surrounding it, is the Pittsburgh at Denver game. There's so, so many question marks hanging over this. So we've got Big Ben is probably going to play, but might not play. He's injured at the moment. They've said it's now a cartilage injury, or sorry, ligament damage injury in his shoulder. Uh, so it is something that he can play through. It will be a pain element, and it might slightly limit his deep ball ability not stop it but that it would be painful to throw it or might shorten his throwing range uh, Antonio Brown obviously we are all presuming he's not going to play and then uh, obviously then there's the this issue that Manning is now going to be the starting quarterback which uh, a lot of people are happy about and I'm looking at and just kind of going how quickly people forget how this person was playing before they uh, before they were benched 
there seems to be a lot of, especially with the injuries to Denver and that a lot of people going, this is definitely going to be Denver's game. I would preface this by saying this is a Denver team that in the last four games nearly lost to the Chargers, right? The Chargers. Lost to the Steelers and the Raiders and barely squeaked past the Bengals. Like, this is not a particularly strong team. It's got a high-end defense, but a lot of questions on offense. Running back play, I think, is going to be incredibly important in this game for them. They were about held about three and a half yards per carry the last time these two teams met, and that was a big factor in being able to, 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 to stop them. They can thrive on the deep ball against Pittsburgh with their weak secondary and the problems they've got back there, but they've got a guy with a noodle for an arm throwing. Like, people topped up this Week 17 return of of Peyton Manning but he was like six attempts for 40 yards and none of them were particularly distant and it was literally like the longest throw he made was he had like a five yard out that he threw to the sideline like there wasn't any deep balls in here it was mostly just handing the ball off when we say you know he's a great quarterback and I don't disagree he was a brilliant quarterback he's one of the best that have played the game uh, and whatnot. but like when they look at him they go this is going to be a much better result than Brock Osweiler Brock Osweiler was playing relatively well in the system at the back end he wasn't great but this is a quarterback who in 10 games threw 9 touchdowns and 17 interceptions like this is not a guy who you're just going to go oh he's going to come in and it's going to be an upgrade I'm Still torn. I'm going to wait until I hear what you guys have to say. I haven't picked who I'm going to take in this game yet. This is the mystery box game, isn't it? Like, you've no idea what's going to come out of this. I'm not optimistic. I think this is going to be quite a poor game. Um, There's a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, as you've discussed, the injuries, the question marks. So we gather, okay, the passing game is probably going to suffer as a result of that. The running game, you're up against A, the Broncos defense, who is spectacularly good against the run, and a Pittsburgh defense that... In the last few weeks, particularly with the play of guys like Ryan Shazier and Cameron Hayward, has suddenly found itself as being incredibly good against the run. Uh, Yes, Pittsburgh do have problems in the secondary. Like you said, Denver are an extremely ill-equipped team to exploit that right now. So what you're going to see, I think, from both teams is a lot of of that dink and dunk, screen pass, bubble screens kind of stuff, and hoping that one of the wide receivers can rip off a good play. Ben is going to probably struggle to throw the deep ball. He's probably going to try to throw the deep ball. He's Ben Roethlisberger. That's what he does. He turns up injured and he just harfs it all over the field. (laughs) <laughs> but we've also seen him play hurt this season and in the past and just not be able to do that and then sort of struggle to adapt. So I think we're going to see both teams are going to sort of try and pick away at each other. Come uh, Michael Vick! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, um, yeah, no, uh, Rothsberger's arm falls off and Landry Jones uh, comes in and then, I don't know, Manning's arm falls off and is Osweiler actually hurt? Um, he is apparently a bit injured, but they're not being clear on how injured he is. I assume he'll be on the bench if he's in anyway. Yeah, because because like cause I've I've seen people actually discussing their third ring third string running back or quarterback the the chap who they drafted this year who is uh, his career total at the moment is one pass for negative one yards. That's Peyton Manning numbers right there, so that's yeah. fine. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's difficult to see how both teams are going to move the ball. And obviously, you know, you go these games, you, then it just turns out to be the complete opposite of what you think it's going to be. But I think this is going to be a lot of sort of feeling out towards the start of this game as both teams try and sort of work out what works within their limitations against the defense they're going up against. The reason I'm edging towards Denver is I think Denver's defense is probably going to be a bit tougher to figure out than Pittsburgh. So we know where the weaknesses are for Pittsburgh. And yes, Denver may not be particularly equipped to exploit that in some ways but I would think that they're in a better position to be able to do that like without Antonio Brown Pittsburgh are relying on some very very talented but still in a little bit in a little bit raw guys like uh, Bryant and Wheaton whereas you've got Sanders and uh, Thomas who are two two hugely experienced wide receivers 
who have uh, shown that they can still play at a very, very high level. So I think Denver are just in a slightly easier position when it comes to it. They're, I think, going to be the first team to figure out what they need to do right, get themselves marginally ahead, um, and you know Pittsburgh are just not going to be able to claw them back in. Yeah, and I suppose there is that element as well that even if it's short enough passes, if someone breaks off a little bit of distance into it, the lack of tackling ability in the secondary is something to allow them to get more off those passes. That's what maybe. Demarius Thomas is very, very good at yeah, in particular. That's what I'd be thinking myself as well. Uh, what about yourself, Ronan? Yeah, like I think the one injury that, that obviously wasn't last week in Cincinnati is D'Angelo Williams. It's probably going to be still out based on reports so far. That's a, still a massive loss for Pittsburgh. Like Todman and Toussaint did okay against Cincinnati, but there's still a definite drop off in quality there. Like I think the big thing here is that Pittsburgh's offense is built around the big play. Brown and uh, Williams slash Le'Veon Bell were the heart of like the bread and butter of that offense. And Martavius Bryant and Marcus Wheaton are incredibly talented complementary pieces for that, for giving Pittsburgh that big playability. But if, if Ben Roethlisberger can't throw it down the field, that is taken out of their repertoire. And the, one, the, the players who they have the highest strength for are effectively much less effective in that situation. Like They're incredibly talented players, but I don't see them beating high coverage near the line of scrimmage. I don't see Marcus Wheaton. I don't see... Uh, Bryant has been that type of player doing that and you have two inexperienced running backs the thing about Denver is for all of their faults all season their offense has been premised on that dink and dunk all season they've been saying we want to run the ball we want to mostly use play action for whatever explosive plays we have otherwise it'll be dink and duck kind of short pass offense and Peyton Manning for all his faults is very good at that he is very good at getting that out there and I think that this Denver O-line should have enough against a Pittsburgh front line, which is quite good, very fast, and you have players like Shazier, should be good enough to give them enough time to keep making plays and keep grinding down the field and playing the clock. And when Pittsburgh get out there, they just won't have that ability to do what they want to do if, if Ben Roethlisberger's arm isn't where it should be. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm incredibly tied on this game. One, obviously, because of the question marks, but also, two, because of... I'm not, I'm not sure where... I have less trust offensively between these two. I think I obviously prefer Denver's defense to Pittsburgh's defense at the moment. I cha- I question your thing of the, the the two chaps not doing well. They got nearly two hundred yards between them against a very very tough Bengals defense. So I wouldn't see that as a massive problem. I think just to check on that, I do think we see this happen quite a lot when guys break out of running back for the first time, and there's no, not really any tape. There's not really any expectation, and they do very well. And then the second game. They struggle, uh, so I think you know I, th- I wouldn't read a huge amount into that. Yeah, we see that happen a lot. Regardless, just 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 on that, I think regardless of who wins our game between the Chiefs and the Patriots, that team is going to beat whatever team comes out. Of well, this. I think we're both be cheering for that team. Yeah, like we'll both be back in that one anyway because fuck fuck the Denver Broncos <laughs> and fuck Ben Roethlisberger, fuck, fuck Ben Raplesberger, please allegedly allegedly. <laughs> allegedly allegedly fucked by Ben Raplesberger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call a scoreline of. 20 to 17. I'm going to say Denver edge it because they're the home team. And also the fact that if if, uh, if Manning goes poorly, they can bench him and put in a different quarterback. Whereas that's not really an option for if Big Ben is terrible because it's 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 a stretch to call the other guys quarterbacks. Uh, I can actually see this game being a game with a lot of field goals. Yeah. So I'm thinking this could be something like 16 to 12 to Denver. Yeah, I think this is going to be a messy one. Uh, Fitz? I'm 
thinking probably six seventeen. I think I think Denver have a will will grind this game out, and Pittsburgh with an injured Ben just won't have enough to really do anything. Fair enough, fair enough. So that's our calls so far. Uh, thanks all you guys for your messages and your questions and stuff. We'll get to more of them as uh, we have a bit more time. But obviously, we had kind of eight games that we really had to go into a bit of depth in in this one. Uh, so, any crack with yourselves, lads? Uh, like the big news, obviously, this week is uh, David Bowie uh, passing away. Yeah, musician and uh, the famed Kansas City supporter. Ah, here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, David Bowie died. Uh, obviously, sad to see him go. Yeah. Great chap. Loved Very his music. So. Uh, I remember once once played a cover of one of his songs in my band. Uh, definitely didn't do it justice. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, it's good with guys David Bowie because it's like you know I wasn't his biggest fan or anything, but he's one of those people like uh, like Michael Jackson or like well Queen, who I am a huge fan of. But they're one of those bands or one of those musicians or artists you just can't you can't dislike them. Yeah, like even if you're not the biggest fan in the world, what they did is just so easy to appreciate. And Bowie not only did that in terms of music, but he also like sort of as part of the, his visual aspect, and he was just so out there in terms of the cultural icon he became. Yeah. His legacy is his musical legacy is fantastic, but his cultural legacy as well is something that's going to go on for a long time. Yeah. One, one of the things that I forgot was say two of them, I suppose, was like one he set up his own like internet service provider. <laughs> Um, which is which is an interesting movie. It was very much a, a good view of kind of tech and where it was going. But the other one as well is that he uh, he revolutionized. If I remember the bonds market, he started releasing Bowie bonds where people could buy equity in his albums. So he made himself a nice nice chunk of change off the back of that as well. That is interesting. I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, can we start releasing equity in the podcast? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Who wants to lose a lot of money? <laughs> Email now. <laughs> Buy it in Dogecoin. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still a thing? Uh, it's probably there, and you can pick it up for like decimal points on the cent. Like, well, that's a weird thing. Actually, the uh, the English lottery apparently, because of so many rollovers, was actually a good investment. Oh thing. yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, uh, having a similar thing with the Powerball in the states, aren't they? Yeah, 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 huge. Uh, I think that's still. This is why you uh, you, you tune in here, though, so you can get this deep statistical analysis of long, <laughs> long odd Powerball lotteries. Anything would be more useful if you gave you know statistical analysis of the spreads on NFL games. Yeah, so if you um, go this far, then you obviously enjoy us talking about crap. So. Yeah, that's true. It's true. This is I'd I'd love to see the numbers on this. There'll be like one person listening here, and it'll be one of our mothers who'll just be like, "Oh my god, isn't it great? They went really long this week. They had so much to talk about. They're all so smart." Seen gambling. Seen uh, Lorna is twenty five to one. To win a seat. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, uh, Laura, Laura Bogle, friend of ours, is standing for election. She is uh, twenty-five to one to win down in uh, Cork South Central. Cork South Central. South Central out to the west side. Yeah. You are so fucking right. <laughs> uh, twenty-five to one isn't, isn't bad for a for a green. That's for what green I tried to. I tried to suggest that she should she should do a video like that and put it out online. Oh, it's just like no. terrible, Come terrible on. video. It'll be hilarious. <laughs> I think she, she's feeling like the loony lefts and uh, that, she is she is uh, well not one of them but, but most of them yeah Yeah. and there's always this court there's always one nut job down you're there not, you're not beating like, all the loony left but most of them well I mean this is the last bastion of the workers party in Ireland like yeah. I mean Toker Toker is a magical place Toker is the place I told you about that has a bar that has Dutch gold on tap I think yeah. we should go canvas in Toker yeah I want to go down there and try that bar um, one yeah. of the guys I worked with when I was down in Cork told me all about it he's like you should come down and try it because we were discussing cheap beer and he was like there's a bar in there that has uh, Dutch gold on tap and I was like this is amazing he's like but yeah I'd advise probably probably come out to the bar with me instead of wandering into Toker on your own randomly <laughs> like okay that was the place where the granny was arrested for selling coke in the bingo hall. <laughs> and then legend, I, I said legend. that to him and he was like, hold on, the bingo hall in Toker? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, fuck it, I know who she is. 
Uh, the last thing is uh, Orgy Tree left Washington. Very dignified, according to NFL.com. But the only thing that was left in his locker room was a fake quote from Mother Teresa. Oh, yes, I saw this, yeah. <laughs> what? Like, uh, it's a page with a fake quote from Mother Teresa basically go like, it's not their fault. It's not their fault that they don't realise how genius you are. Yeah. You're the football star of a generation. Hang on, hang on, like, isn't there a perfectly legitimate quote from Jesus on that topic? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what? but it doesn't fill a whole page. <laughs> he doesn't want to... <laughs> He doesn't want to break the perception out of his own mind that that would be him quoting himself. Will he be the quarterback of the future and mm. nothing could possibly go wrong? Okay, that's just been confirmed, guys. <laughs> RG3 to the Browns. And on that note, <laughs> we're going to say goodbye. This has been a long one. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening to it. I've uh, had such fun editing this. Yeah, yeah, enjoy, Harry. Enjoy. Uh, say goodbye from me. Goodbye from Harry. Goodbye. Goodbye from Fitz. Goodbye. And hopefully you enjoy your uh, next round of playoff games. Chat to you next week. <laughs>